You're listening to Heart of the Hunter, a serialized fantasy novel set in Koronai, the magical country. This story was written and performed by Sam Chubb. For more information about this podcast, including upcoming role-playing game releases associated with this novel, check out heartofthehunter.com. Now, please enjoy Heart of the Hunter. Chapter 19 If it weren't for the children of the gypsies, who had of necessity gone to bed before the rest, the camp would not have broken that day. But the children, each of them, knew their place and went about their chores, feeding horses and replenishing supplies, rushing about the camp quietly as the adults slept. Aaron had slept on the floor of his father's cart. His father was still asleep in the healer's wagon. Aaron slept amongst pillows that had been first stuffed when he was a boy. He had a dim memory of being carried there at some juncture by his companion, but he could not remember exactly who. That realization also came along with the wish that he could somehow die, as long as it could be a quiet death, as his head felt as if it would literally explode. His throat felt afire, and his body covered in a sure ton of iron chains. Someone, he assumed Sergeant Peter, but he didn't know for sure whom, had been regularly beating on the wall of his wagon to try and rouse him and remind him that he was a mercenary still and not a layabout. In order to stop the thunderous beating if for no other reason, he managed to drag himself out of the pillows and dress. He even managed a half-smile when he saw the laundered shirt a gypsy boy had left for him. He soon moved from his father's wagon to his horse, saw that his tent had already been made a satchel again and was resting on one of the carts, and sat his saddle next to Dob, who drove the second wagon. He thought a little jealously about Chandra, the passenger, who, no doubt, still reposed sweetly in the satchel's luxurious confines. Dob, on the other hand, was ungodly cheerful as the caravan moved out of the campsite, leaving very little trace behind due to the work of many young hands. And Aran dared not speak to him, lest he curse him and his line for all generations. Chipper as a summer morning, Raven trotted up next to Aran, grinning. What's wrong with you? The day had dawned, bright and clear, one of those truly miraculous days of spring where the air was cool, the sun was warm, the sky was clear as crystal and the whole world seemed to be waking from a long sleep, clean and new and young. Raven's senses were sharp, but her friend's condition was fairly plain. You look like you have a hangover. But that's impossible, Raven, Dobb said, grinning. Gypsies don't get hangovers. What he said, Aaron said, pulling the hood of his cloak over his eyes. Oh? So you wouldn't be wanting any cold slap tea, would you? Raven said, grinning and dangling a flask of the dark brown viscous brew in between thumb and forefinger. Aran looked over at Raven, wincing in pain in the sunlight. I have been fond of the Tsingzaza tea in the past, yes. That is the proper Velisti name, of course. Of course. Want some? She let the flask dangle a little longer. He growled, 
but took the flask and stoppered the cork and upended it, drinking down the syrupy, sickly sweet stuff like mother's milk. The look on his face to Raven was priceless as the bitter end of the drink screwed his face up into a puckered wince. Aron then sat back and braced himself for the slap part of cold slap tea. Raven couldn't help but be a little sympathetic. It was said that cold slap tea didn't just cure hangovers. It drastically reduced their duration by strengthening their intensity. Raven heard Aron's breathing change, and she knew the slap had come and he hunched over in his seat for a moment as the nasty herbal concoction did its bitter but necessary work. Don't forget to cuss, Raven said. By the three beards of the traitor Turncos, that stuff is foul poison, Aran said, spitting off to the side of the road. Creative? I haven't heard that one before. It was bad, eh? But not as bad as your head would have been all day, Raven said. Sliding back his cloak hood, Aran fixed the scout with one eye. Yes, yes, you're quite right. Aran felt the tea working, his headache going, and his eyes returning to normal, though his stomach still muttered revenge. Thank you, Raven. You're welcome, she said, grinning. So, where did you spend your evening, Blackbird? Did a true warrior of the Velisti catch your eye and win you to bed? Ha! Hardly. Don't get me wrong, Arn, they're nice boys. A damn sight nicer than the snotty half-nobles my mother used to force me to dance with back in Blackpool. I had no idea your mother had ambitions as a dance hall mistress. Fascinating. Yeah, right, in addition to her fortune-telling... No, not that. She was after a marriage for me, truth be told. You were to be sold off, then, like the Gahe do, Arn asked as their horses picked along the Lunasa River Road. Raven sighed. Something of that, yeah. At least that's how it all works out in the end. You'd think it'd be cheaper to go to the Silver Tower on Red Lantern Street or to Silk Road in Jesquan City and buy a proper whore. But, nay, these lordlings were after the hand of someone, anyone, who could somehow either benefit their position or dangle as an attractive ornament. And my mother had it in her mind that she could somehow come across all respectable, being that she had a star-moon token in her little business. She would have sold me if she could have, but she didn't get any takers. I can't imagine how that happened, but with your genteel nature, gracious politesse, and the like. Bugger. You wouldn't have known me to see me back then. That was before I got out. Ah, this is before you met the illustrious Ginza Ratcatcher, Ring Thief. Yeah, you could say that. And she only stole a ring once. Damn, it's like you do one thing, one time, and everybody thinks they know you. It was a nipple ring, Raven. Yeah, but it's not like it's that big of a deal. It was tucked into a burgomaster's wife. Yeah, but she was asleep at the time. 
Besides, something so pretty shouldn't have been hidden. As you say. So, say instead. Why didn't you take up your mother's business instead of a life of crime? Life of crime, indeed. But as to the business, I haven't the sight, obviously. And neither did she, as far as I could tell. I think she just faked it all. Ha! Well, her clientele deserved what they got going to a gahe seer. And what of father's business? You know, let's just call a halt to it right there, Raven said, frowning. Arn's eyebrows went up and his voice set to soothing. I had no wish to offend. Cry peace. A few hoofbeats later, Raven turned back to him. Yeah, whatever. Look, let's just say my fine Lunagenti Papa was never in the picture, okay? And leave it at that. As you wish, fair blackbird. They were stopped at a gentle slope in the river and were watering the horses when Alabar approached Arin. Excuse me, Arin. I would like a word with you. Whatever it is, preacher, I didn't do it, I promise. Arin said, a smile breaking across his face. Hm? Oh, uh, of course not. Yes. Uh, well, uh, as to the reason why I stopped you. Go ahead, Patra. I'll listen now. This, um, ring, can you tell me more about it? Alabar said, holding it up for Arin to look at. Allow me to touch, Arin asked softly. I'll give it right back. Oath of the road, remember? Oh, yes, certainly. He turned the copper ring over in his hand. Where'd you get this? It's a Velisti manufacture. Mom's Elaine gave it to me but I have felt strangely while carrying it, as if there is some kind of spirit watching me. It isn't something I find particularly comforting, you understand. Ah, well, that explains more. This is a ring of wisdom for the ancestors, what we call a Valain ring. It is said to aid in the growing of wisdom and knowledge, Padra. Surely you'd like that. I'm not altogether sure... I enjoy that which the Velisti would call wise, although I would never myself look down on their gifts. Well spoken, preacher, and you may be right. Still, it is a thing of antiquity. If you don't wish it to affect you, you might wish to wrap it in black silk. I have a handkerchief here which would do the job if you'd like. Alvar considered for a moment. Yes, I think that's right. I'd like that. Thank you, Arin. My pleasure, Patra. Glad the Velisti are to know we may aid the priesthood of Aelor. Glad is this Aelor, who stands in receipt of yet more Velisti wisdom, Alabar said, bowing. Great. Are you boys going to dance, or are we going to go to work? We have to switch out the cartoons. Come on. Dove said as he bustled about doing just that.
The trigate flared, and its by now familiar triangular gateway formed in the air above the millstone-like triangular stone. Hoskins' guards snapped to attention as two warriors with flame halberds stepped out of the gateway. They wore the livery of the mayoral guard and surveyed the scene quickly before taking a step back and framing both sides of the pyramidal tunnel opening that was the trigate tube. Then the irregulars present saw someone arrive they had never expected, the mayor of Blackpool, dressed in black velvet finery, stepped forward with a single coalwood staff in one hand. The staff was tipped by a perfect riverine pearl of pale white that glowed in the dimming light of the day. Several quick and alert servants accompanied him. One of them, clearly the major-domo of his house, quickly moved to the highest-ranking guard and addressed him directly. "'Where are the prisoners being kept?' he demanded. Before the guard could answer, the old man himself, Major Hoskins, appeared out of a tent on the grounds. Hoskins' gravelly voice sounded over whatever reply the guard was about to give. "'I'll take you to them, Your Honor.' "'Ah, Major, it is good to see you. "'Would you mind terribly doing just that?' Master Chief Hornboot joined Major Hoskins as he led the party of functionaries and the mayor himself across the camp. The enclosure for the prisoners was on the other side of the camp, but there were a few prisoners that had warranted the attention of some of the irregulars magickers. They didn't have half as many sorcerers as the Red Foxes or the Montgrave Company did, but the ones they had were high quality. The mayor's party immediately approached a tarasque, its four arms pinioned back against a flat stone, held in place with magical force from a sorcerer's wards. The majordomo turned to Hoskins. Release him to us, he said. Like hell we will, the master chief said simply. His honor is prepared to pay the usual sum for his kind as a ransom. It's more than fair. I might remind you that we are still well within the boundaries of the Blackpool Protectorate, and... Blackpool Protectorate, my ass. Where was Flaw when the river road needed opening? Hornboot continued. Hoskins put his hand on the Master Chief's shoulder. Not now, he began slowly. The Major Domo held up a hand to quell the chief, but their discussion was put to an end right away as the mayor himself spoke up. No need to free him, Flaw said, moving aside his eye patch, revealing his milky white glowing flawed right eye. His eye flared, and an unholy bleached bone white flare burned a painful circle into the eyes of all who could see. There was not even time for the Tarasque to scream, and every other nail tongue in the enclosure joined him as the flares burst from each one of them present. Each time another flare erupted, a fine fall of black ash fell to the ground like an unnatural snow. There. Solved your prisoner problem. Hoskins turned to face the mayor, his eyes narrow and fierce. The irregulars don't make a habit of killing prisoners. You may certainly bill me for any guild claimed, Flaw said, 
turning his now half-shuttered gaze to the Major. Good day, Major. Flaw turned back to his entourage as they walked away. Is this swamp witch nearby? He queried an albino Agrim sorcerer. No, your honor, the sorcerer replied. A pity. I don't like loose ends. Ah, well, no matter. Flaw said, and turning, made his way back to the Trigate. Thank you for your hospitality, Major, his Major Nono said, and tossed Hornboot a bag of coin. For your trouble. Thanks. I'll donate it to the Widows and Orphans Fund, the Master Chief replied with acid in his voice. As you wish, the Major Demo said, bowing, and departed with the rest of the Mayor's people. The entire camp breathed a sigh of relief as the Trigate Tunnel closed on the Mayor's departure. Hoskins turned to Hornboot. Graham, you and your boys get that Trigate Stone up off the ground and on a cart and prepare for bug-out. Don't cross me or the Mayor again, and you may yet to live to see another season. You're out of your depth, boy. Hear me? Heard. Understood. Will do, Major. The Master Chief said. Thank you kindly. Good day, Hoskins said, saluting as he made his way back to his tent. combined caravans parted ways as they reached the Nivist Landing Ferry, which would take Peter's caravan further to the west. The Gypsy Compania would be turning south to arrive in time for the horse fair in Wereford. Let this not be a farewell forever, Arensinger, Mamzelaine said, wiping a tear from her eye. Your puppies is healed of his wounds, but he is an old man, and the exhaustion from the healing has not yet left him. Still, the tribe will have need of you in the future. Ah, I, Mamza, I will return. My heart, after all, is with the Wunjo peoples. With one specific Wunjo person, I think. Lane said, her eyes darting for a moment toward Karin, who stood marshalling some of the children. But never mind. I have prepared some food for the road for your gallant crew. I know that you will be hard-pressed to have anything pleasant for the many miles you have left to travel to Hardstopper's breath. At least it is still the first moon in spring and you have the summer to look forward to. It will be a long, muddy slush ride through the thaw, long and arduous Aaron Singer. Mamza, I understand, but it must be done. Very well. If we cannot persuade you otherwise, do look for us as you head back southwise. We are likely to wander across to Amnishka before too long. We shall give this land a wide berth for a time. There is no telling what the nail may do now that their war rage has been bestirred. Aye, Mamza, you are right. Thank you, Mamza. And Lady Raven, do you come to us again when you will? And Sir Peter, and Brother Healer, all of you are to be known as Vlisti kind, gypsy friends. 
Although I should think that it may, in some circles, cause you more trouble than give you a boon, but such as it is, eh? Few Gahe are so honored. There were thanks from the crew, and Lane embraced each of them in turn, pronouncing her blessing of safe journey on them. Just before they parted ways, Raven asked after the bard among the outriders. Everyone agreed that he had stayed overnight with them, but that he had gotten up bright and early and strode with his long lunar genti strides away, disappearing as neatly as he had arrived. Corinne made it a point to boldly embrace Arryn in front of his crew, kissing him passionately farewell in flagrant violation of the normal rules of conduct. But Momsalane said nothing, just kept her peace and pretended that nothing had happened. Return to me soon, my love. Return to me when your wanderings are over. Will you? Corinne wanted to know. I will return for you. Is that what you wish? Sometimes I don't understand, Corin. You are like the Hizinta spice, running hot and then cold. You wanted a true daughter of the Velisti, did you not? And when has it said that we are not ever changing? True enough. Very well, Corin. I will think on this and return to you. Do you stay safe amongst the tribe and keep yourself for me? I will keep myself. But not forever, Arryn Singer. Not forever. Until soon, my love. Until soon, she said, kissing him again. Jurgen approached Mom's Elaine with a small coin purse in his hand. <clears throat> Thank you, madam. On behalf of the Presta Concern, I am authorized to gift you with this by way of thanks of your assistance thus far, Jurgen said. Why, thank you, Master Ryan Purse, Lane said. I will now offer you a blessing in the form of a poem from the Velisti. Speaking quickly in the gypsy language, Mamza Lane's voice was fluid and beautiful, with the factor held transfixed while she declaimed. Raven, watching this take place on her horse, could not hide her glee as she saw two young Wunjo children move past the factor slowly but with great purpose, and then accidentally break past him while roughhousing. A little later, just before they were to depart, Raven tracked the gypsy boy down. You should really pay more attention as to what's going on around you, young one, and who's looking. Give it to me, she said, holding out a hand, her other hand resting on her dagger tattoo. Reluctantly, the boy produced Jurgen's pocket watch and dangled it out to her, simultaneously pleased with himself and chagrined at getting caught. Raven ruffled the boy's hair. Here, let me show you a better way, she said, grinning. The gypsies helped secure the wagons of the ferry boat and bade the caravan a final farewell. Peter was sorry to see them go, all things told. Although he had to quietly agree with Jurgen's request that Dav and Gar look through the entire cargo load to see what had been lifted. Surprisingly few boxes had been, and most of them from a case labeled tea-leaf herbals, containing a number of packets of dried herbs and other preparations. To make things worse, the factor nearly erupted in hellfire when he discovered his pocket watch was gone, but Raven pointed out the spot on the deck where obviously he had dropped it. After that, he spent the rest of the ferry ride in his wagon, calculating the loss to the concern's profit 
due to the theft of the herbs. Peter thought the loss a price worth paying, as it had meant that he and his had escaped the nail horde, traveled several days in the space of a few hours, and had several good meals, which, despite Dob and Gar's skill at the cookpot, were not known to be very common on the road. The river was swollen with spring melt, and the banks on both sides of the river here were regularly visited by herds of deer, who were clearly unafraid to be seen, thus placing in Peter's mind the idea that they were far, far north indeed, away from the bustle of larger towns and cities, and closer to the wild and raucous northern Lunarjan border. As he turned the guide rope capstan to safely cross the river, the ferryman nodded to the woman primly waiting for them on the other side of the river. She was dressed in an official-looking tabard over homespud clothes, and held a chalk slate in her hands. That there is the tax collector. I wouldn't try and cheat her, I wouldn't. She can be quite mean when provoked. I'll take that under advisement, Peter said, grinning. When they had gotten the carts off the ferry, and after the dowdy woman had gone on walk around the two caravan wagons, a magic sniffer in her hand to check for illusions, charms, and all manner of gimcrackery that smugglers are wont to use, she came back to Peter and Jurgen, and, smiling, presented them with their tax bill on the slate she carried. I do assess ye five hundred Lunargenti crowns. Ye be in Lunargen this day, good sirs. The queen thanks you for your business. I believe that won't be necessary today, good woman, Jurgen said, for he had insisted on coming out to meet the officer of the crown. Sergeant, if you will, the token. Peter wordlessly produced the silver coin-like object and passed it to the factor. There, you see, it be silver in nature and was told to us to be a pass of some sort, such as the nobility I want to use. You may certainly verify its authenticity and provenance any way you like. The tax collector took the token, hefted its weight, examined the engraving, and instantly knew it was the genuine article. That hadn't really been her first suspicion anyway. The question was, where did they get this thing? Where did a merchant caravan get such a thing which was only given to the close children of the noble families of the borders? She returned the pass to Jurgen and nodded. And where be ye from? We are with the Presta concern, out of Blackpool. Don't know them. Long way from Blackpool. Peter spoke up. We took the river road this far. The woman nearly dropped the chalk slate in surprise. You did what? Jurgen grinned. Best be preparing for the traffic, good woman. You will see many more like us this summer, I assure you. The river road's open now. My company, the Prester Concern, has seen to that. The word came in by letterbox this morning. We were victorious against the nail tongue. Uline's power is scattered and broken. There's still Mad Jack and his gang, the collector said doubtfully. Not any longer there isn't, Arn said, firmly but not full of pride. The collector smiled and pushed an errant lock of hair out of her face. Well then, it is a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for the news. Will you be visiting yon alehouse before heading out? She said, indicating a small shack that she, no doubt, also ran with her husband. Jurgen made a slight bow and smiled. I'm afraid there's no time. Thank you very much, good woman. I'm assuming we may go. 
The collector looked to her husband, the ferryman, who nodded. Yes, you may pass. Welcome to Lunarjan. Peter spoke up. If it please you, ma'am, can you give us an idea of what roads may be in service in these parts? We've had a rough going so far, as you can imagine. She considered for a moment, and then nodded. That road there, to the west, is the better of the two. The north road's got lots of mud, lots of rocks. West road will fork north a bit, and give you a better journey. Pretty bridges, too, is part of the marches, so the crown keeps it up nice. Many thanks, wise lady. Farewell, Jurgen said, bowing again. Good day to you, she said. As the caravan pulled out, the tax collector returned to her little fortified house by the river. Moving to her writing desk, she took out quill and ink, and began scribing a missive. Like the factor, she had a letterbox of her own, and it would be interesting to see what House Tenuvial's knight marshal had to say about this turn of events. One thing's for certain, the road she had put them on would soon take them within a short ride of Tenuvial lands so perhaps they can investigate on the Crown's behalf. The rain, which had been threatening for days, arrived. It began to fall towards mid-morning, clouds boiling east from the not-too-distant sea, forming a dark gray canopy over the silver firs of the borderland forests. At first it was just a drizzle, a mild annoyance. But the rain began to pick up, and soon it was cascading over the roots and rocks and trees, forming slurry streams as the hard ground rejected this sudden torrent, offering only a brief respite before continuing all the next day. And the next... The road they traveled became muddy between the slats of the embedded, felled, denuded, and planked trees that made the cord of it. At least, the high quality of the road-making meant that the way was sure and clear even in the impenetrable weather, and the horses had relatively little trouble pulling the wagons. Miles and miles of ground were covered in the driving rain, and nothing to break the monotony but endless forests in all directions waypoint markers, and the occasional Brudine, emergency way stations, most of which had clearly not been resupplied by the local lord since winter had entered. There was only mild thunder and hardly any lightning, but the constant, endless rain was dampening their bodies and their spirits. By the third day straight of rain, the crew was getting tired of it. There should be an inn or something along this road, shouldn't there? Peter asked Dov. On a border march, sir? Not hardly. You'd starve, depending on the traffic around here, especially since the river road's been down. No. No end to be expected. We'll have to pitch camp in the rain again. Not that I'd want, but there you have it. For the third time, they dragged out their sodden tents and the damp tarps and stuck the two wagons close together, trying to find a dry place under the trees. Raven, the city dweller, was particularly unprepared for the heavy rain. She had worn a heavy winter cloak for a while until it had become so heavy with soak that it was impossible to wear. After that, she rode exposed in the rain, straining to keep the water from her eyes. 
She felt herself wet to the core, and a chill flooded her body. It was made worse when she took a misstep into some false ground cover, her foot coming down hard and sudden. It was only her lithe dancer's body that let her turn just so to avoid twisting her ankle as she took the fall down an embankment, her whole left side covered in dark, sludgy, lunargenti mud. Arin had the only dry tent amongst them, for his magical knapsack pavilion did not ever seem to keep the wet. Going to Arin, she didn't have to threaten him with violence, because some survival instinct told him to comply with her desire to visit its roomy, luxurious interior. What happened to you? Chandra asked, looking up from a book, eyeglasses perched on her nose. She had been staying in the tent ever since she joined the party, Arin hot bunking with Peter in his tent as they took turns at watch. Raven paused for a moment, dripping in the vestibule of the pavilion. What she saw next shocked her. The pavilion was the tidiest it had been in centuries, most likely, with furnishings emerging from the clutter that had made the place homey and attractive, no longer dark and brooding. Additional mage lights had been found, and their light added to further banish the gloom. Uncovered chests of clothing had been ransacked with suitable, if somewhat eccentric, clothes found to augment the few gifts Chandra had received from the Velisti women. What happened? What happened is that it's God's damn raining. It rains and rains and rains and doesn't stop. It's not like there's any place for the rain to go, either. It just all slushes up on the ground into this... stuff. Mud, you mean, Chandra said, pushing back an errant curl. Mud? Muck? Whatever. Haven't these people heard of cobblestones? When is it going to stop? I'm tired of relieving myself in the rain, eating in the rain, sleeping in the rain, never having a decent loathous damn meal, never having... Raven, it's just the way things are out here in the woods. Yeah? Well, I'm God's damn tired of the God's damn woods. I haven't been dry in days. I think moss is starting to grow in my nether reaches. Raven. What? Do you feel any warmer? Raven did feel warmer, and she felt the hair on her head starting to dry out. What? What are you doing? Just raising the temperature around you a bit? I used to do it for Father when he came in out of the snow. I just... I guess I just didn't realize I was doing it before. You're using your magic? I thought you had some difficulties with that. Isn't it a sin or some such? Chandra instantly dropped the magical threads she'd been unconsciously weaving, and the air slowly resumed its normal cool. Patra Alabar has offered me absolution. I didn't think it would be a problem. I'm sorry. Look, don't be sorry. And don't stop. I haven't been dry in days. I'll take what I can get. Let me get out of these leathers, though. If they try too fast, like on a summer day, they'll crack for sure. All right, but be sure to change behind that screen. You never know when one of the men will come in. Whatever. So, you mean there's no way to lock this place from the inside? That's not very secure. If there is, Arin hasn't shown me yet. Raven found several silken robes hanging up behind the changing screen in the tent, and one had a definite feminine design on it. That cad! Looks like this is the man's tumble tent, Raven said sardonically, fingering the robe. At least she had good taste in silk, if not in men. Chandra blushed as 
she poured Raven a cup of white tea and handed it to her with a saucer, then went to hang the wet leathers to dry on a cord that seemed to be made for that purpose. "'You don't like Arryn?' she asked, trying to keep her voice neutral. I wouldn't go that far. He's fine for an annoying, self-important egoist. Say, this is a nice place. You've cleaned up. I found all this stuff. Of course, there's a lot of junk, too. It's amazing what kind of things you find, and some things I don't even understand, like this here, she said, crossing to hand Raven a strange object. It looks like a sculpture of some kind, but who would want a sculpture of a gourd so tubular and strangely curved? Raven looked at the item she held and said, I don't think that's a sculpture, honey. Just trust me when I say you want to put that back where you found it. Oh, Chandra said, chagrined, and did just that. When Raven had finished her tea, she stood with her arms and legs out, and Chandra finished drying her off. Sticking her head out of the tent, she called for Gar and had him fetch Raven's stowage so she could retrieve the only other set of leathers she owned. These were slightly tighter and more careworn than her favorites. Chandra found a thicker, oilskin cloak for her to wear. Can you make me up a pallet of my own? I think I'm sleeping here tonight, if you don't mind. Not at all. I'll just be sitting here reading the story of Al-Kabira and the Clockwork Dove, she said, gesturing to her book. I found it. There are hundreds of Amishkin scimitar and veil romances, and a pair of magical reading glasses that translates written Amishkin into trade. Nice. They were probably his aunts. Hey, take care and don't break a nail, okay? Raven said, grinning, and turned, making her way out of the tent. Raven was thankful for the extra protection she received from the oilskin, because shortly after leaving Arryn's pavilion, the rain redoubled its efforts. On top of that, a swarm of bloodsuckers came out of the cool, rain-soaked night in numbers enough for the entire crew to hear the hum of their manifold wings. There was an unholy feeling that they had brought with them, a fell spirit that seemed to prematurely darken the new-fallen night. And in the midst of that cloud of stinging, biting, hateful insects, the being once known as Frick still clung to his hate and his anger. His deathly, vengeful heart struck out even though his body was a distant memory food for worms in the swamp. The sidekick of a madman, he was no longer. He was more, so much more. Now, he was Ka'un, and he would have his revenge on them. Farther north, a troop of mercenaries had set up camp with carefully concealed blinds. On a slight rise in the mostly flat landscape, the warriors waited, constantly on the watch for movement to the south. Sergeant Harcourt, a tall, dark-haired Lunargenti man, used his farseer again, looking off into the rivers of grass that seemed to spread and flow down the wastes. Though it seemed to die every time ice bit down on it, the grass stayed and continued, reborn each spring. Harcourt was, for his part, sick to death of it. Whilst a young Lunargenti noble, he had always dreamed of running away to join a mercenary troop, 
whereupon he'd set out on adventures in exotic lands, killing new and interesting people. Instead, he was squatting amongst this damned, endless grass, being eaten alive by bugs that only sampled his flesh and left behind noisome wounds. Rains had come to the wastes and washed down on them, pouring down and feeding the damnable sea of green. The damp was especially hard on those who chose to still wear their armor. Both the weather and the bugs would have been enough to put Harcourt and his crew in foul humor, but the strangeness of their mission also grated. They had marched many days out of Northport, one of the only Lunargenti towns in the area, to be here, and were told to set up by the trade road and simply wait and watch, hidden. The only mate in the crew of soldiers who seemed to be of a mind to enjoy the day was Talith, the sorcerer. Talith gave Harcourt the shivers, his weird touch eyes showing unnaturally violet with black pupils. Harcourt waved at Talith to sit his position and tugged his camouflage cloak hood about his head. Lieutenant Dunstan had been viciously clear about the need to stay hidden. As he waited for the magic of the hood to kick in and blend him perfectly with the grass around his blind, he tried to avoid Talith's demon eyes. Talith chuckled to himself as if he sensed the sergeant's displeasure but immediately looked away when he felt the man react. Turning and walking slowly down the path which had been worn through the grass from blind to blind, he made his way to the magically camouflaged tent of the lieutenant himself. My lord Dunstan, Harcourt said upon entering, any word from the Fairchild? It's funny you should ask, Sergeant, yes. I have received a letterbox from our good friends, the Fairchild Concern. Apparently their insider in the Prester concern has reported that a caravan has made it out of the Ulin Swamp, and has somehow gotten as far as the Lunargenti border. Seems the Hoskins regulars were called in, transported by thrice damned Trigate, and thus slaughter went forth among the nail. It's our job, apparently, to see that this caravan never reaches Iron Town. It would be bad for the Fairchild's business. I had no idea the Prester would commit so much coin on what was most assuredly an exploratory trade mission, merely to protect it. Harcourt stifled his first response, which was that Dunstan was an idiot. Although he didn't quite have all the pieces of this puzzle, he knew the facts at hand didn't fit Dunstan's analysis. If the Prester concern's goal was to push through a caravan, why didn't they send a bigger, better armed one? This was no rush to protect commerce. This was something greater at stake. But sergeants don't get to advance in the Gerfalcon troop by pointing out their betters logical fallacies. As you say, sir. Well, and we have no great love for the nail. Did the message say when they might be heading our way? Any day now, good sergeant, any day now. That is why it is most important that you and your men observe the proper stealth we do not know when they'll be about. Plus, the Guaran are known to travel this area, as I think I may have mentioned. Only the fifth time, Harcourt thought. Yes, Lieutenant, the Manwolves will not find us. Talith's ward holds, and we keep to strict camouflage discipline. Very good. We'll wait until we sight our target, do our job, and get out of here, Sergeant. Easy money. And we'll be back in Northport before you know it. 
Harcourt figured he'd gotten as much information as his idiot lieutenant had to give. As you say, sir, may I be dismissed? Of course. But to inquire as to what tonight's dinner repast will be, I trust something tasty will emerge from the cook tent. At first Harcourt had not believed the luxury of a magically protected, filtered and vented cook tent, but it had appeared to be a qualification for Dunstan to take part in any military venture. Old soldiers demand more and more luxuries in the field. It was a wonder he hadn't brought his own red lantern girl or boy with him. As you wish, Lieutenant. I will bring tonight's menu for you. Excellent. Dismiss, Sergeant, Dunstan said. Harcourt saluted and went back out into the rain. It was going to be a long wait, Harcourt thought to himself. In the eternal gray of the constant downpour of rain, nobody saw Talith tuck a jade dragon figurine into his hand and whisper in Changian, How may I serve the Kwatong this day? A smile creased his sorcerer's features as he heard the answer. You've been listening to Heart of the Hunter, a Coronai Chronicles story. Heart of the Hunter is brought to you by the Fireheart Foundry family of podcasts. Fireheart Foundry also produces Fledgling, a Leaden Universe science fiction novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. The Bears Grove Podcast. Dragonkin, the podcast for kids and gaming. The Square One Podcast, and Vibrant Living. Find out more about the Fireheart Foundry at fireheartfoundry.com. This podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use, license 2.5. Music is provided by the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening, and we invite you back to our fire real soon.